What's the real problem with seed oils? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. The first runner-up is from Dora C. And she says, can you clarify what the real issue with seed oils is? Is it the way they're processed, oxidation, linoleic content, or something else? I get confused with all the online noise about this issue. All right. So I think the appropriate place to go to learn about this topic is to the courses on the MasterPass. And we're going to go down to the antioxidant system. And I think the two relevant courses that are most valuable to look at are Lesson 2, Pathological Roles of Oxidants, and Lesson 4, Vitamin E. So if you go to Pathological Roles of Oxidants, we're going to skip over oxidative stress and we're going to look at oxidative damage. Oxidative damage to lipids is... The real problem with seed oils, this is irreversible modification of macromolecules such as lipid, protein, or DNA. Oxidation of lipids is a subset of oxidative damage. But oxidative damage to lipids is often what comes first to drive oxidative damage of these other things. So for example, in a lipoprotein, it's the polyunsaturated fatty acids in the membrane of the lipoprotein, such as LDL, that oxidize before the protein in the lipoprotein ApoB oxidizes, and that's a contributor to atherosclerosis. And the oxidation of the lipids is more sensitive than the oxidation of the protein, but it also drives the oxidation of the protein. And in a cell, if you have cell membrane lipids that oxidize, they fragment into highly soluble and highly reactive products such as malondialdehyde or 4-hydroxynonanal, that can then slide into the nucleus and, and conduct oxidative damage to the DNA. So we're going to focus on oxidative damage to lipids, but we're going to realize that the things we're talking about here can cause oxidative damage to other macromolecules such as proteins and DNA. If you look at a saturated fatty acid in the upper left versus a monounsaturated fatty acid in the upper right versus a polyunsaturated fatty acid in the lower left. And the example is linoleic acid, which was mentioned in the question. The difference is the number of unsaturated bonds. And so what we mean by saturated is all carbon atoms, regardless of whether they're in a fatty acid or any other molecule, have four binding sites. And in a saturated fatty acid, they are all bound to other carbon atoms and any excess binding sites are bound to hydrogen atoms. And so if you have a carbon on the end, it can be bound to three hydrogen atoms and use its one remaining binding site for the carbon next to it. But any of these carbons in the middle are bound to two carbons on either side. That's two binding sites. That leaves two more binding sites to bind to hydrogen. This carbon on the end is, the, is what makes this a fatty acid. This is the carboxylic acid part. And this carbon is actually bound to one carbon 
and then it's double bonded to one oxygen and it's single bonded to another oxygen and that also is four binding sites. So again, this is a general feature of chemistry. It's not a specific to organic chemistry and it's not specific to biochemistry. All carbon atoms in the universe have four binding sites that must be occupied. Okay, now in a monounsaturated fatty acid, you have two carbon atoms that are not saturated with hydrogen. And because two are missing, you have a double bond between these two carbon atoms that is replacing the hydrogen atoms, right? So this carbon, instead of bonding to hydrogen, is binding a second time to this carbon. This carbon, instead of binding to its hydrogen, its missing hydrogen, is double bonding to this carbon. That double bond satisfies the fourth binding sites of both of these two carbons. Now, because this is a uh, this double bond, because of the distribution of mass and charge around it, the double bond introduces a kink into the molecule. This is why monounsaturated fats do, or polyunsaturated fats do not stack together as well as saturated fats, and that's why they tend to be liquid at room temperature instead of solid. Although if you put olive oil in the refrigerator and you put corn oil, which is a seed oil, which is high in polyunsaturated fatty acids uh, in the refrigerator, you'll find that the corn oil does not solidify, but the olive oil does. And that's because polyunsaturated fatty acids have more than one double bond, which introduces one, more than one kink, which introduces an even more complicated structure that packs together even less well than the monounsaturated fatty acids. So they're even more liquid, even as you drop the temperature down. And the problem with polyunsaturated fatty acids is that the carbon between two double bonds, or rather the... No, um, Yep. So the carbon between Oh, right. This carbon right here. Sorry. So you take one double bond, that's right here. You take the second double bond, that's right here. It's the carbon that is between those two double bonds that is destabilized and will easily peroxidize, which means that it gets oxidized, oxygen in the air then binds to it, turns it into a, per a lipid peroxide. And that can either induce a chain reaction where it now becomes an oxidant that oxidizes the polyunsaturated fatty acids that are next to it, or it can fragment into something like malondialdehyde and 4-hydroxynonanol that can leave a cell membrane and rummage through the rest of the cell and cause damage, you know, go on a rampage and cause damage. Uh, in a little more detail... We have simplified this molecule to show two double-bonded carbons by the double lines. Uh, by inference, every point between a line is a carbon in this simplified model. Uh, and what we're showing is that this carbon up here between these two double-bonded carbons is the one vulnerable to oxidation. An oxidant can oxidize it and steal this hydrogen away, steal the electron there. Now you have an unpaired electron in that carbon that's looking for something to bind to. Oxygen comes in and binds to it, but that makes a lipid peroxyl radical that can stabilize by, take, by doing this to another nearby fatty acid and taking its hydrogen and turn into a lipid peroxide, lipid peroxide or it can 
destabilize from there and turn into something like malandialdehyde, which is, uh, I would liken this to breaking a bottle of glass. You had something that was delicate and fragile but useful. You broke it into shards. And now instead of being something that's useful, it's now something that's harmful. And this is like a shard of glass that can spread all over the place and damage whatever it comes into contact with, such as your foot if you're walking around the house. Now, the role of vitamin E comes in to break what's known as the lipid peroxidation chain reaction. So if you have a bunch of polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs in the cell membrane, you have an oxidant that can oxidize it. That is called initiation. So let's say you had a hydroxyl radical. It would take this hydrogen and become water with it. But now you've oxidized this and you've made this a lipid radical. That lipid radical will now look for something else to oxidize. And the most likely thing it'll oxidize is a nearby PUFA in the membrane, another one, that uh, that re restarts this process, right? It takes the hydrogen and the associated electron away. Rather than becoming water, it becomes a lipid peroxide. Um, but it's generated a new lipid peroxyl radical, which excuse me, a new lipid radical, which then get interacts with oxygen to become a lipid peroxyl radical, oxidizes a new PUFA, uh, gener generates one more lipid peroxide itself, but the new PUFA that oxidized becomes a lipid radical. And this just operates in an endless circle until all the PUFAs in the membrane are destroyed. And so that's why you have something like in glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency where you have a defect in the recycling of glutathione uh, secondary to a defect in the pentose phosphate pathway to generate NADPH, which is a derivative of the vitamin B3 or niacin, which recycles glutathione using a riboflavin-dependent enzyme, glutathione reductase. If you compromise that process, you compromise the recycling of vitamin E through vitamin C through glutathione. And what happens is hemolytic anemia because if you, uh, if you peroxidize all the cell membranes in a lipid peroxidation chain reaction in the cell membrane, you will the membrane will fall apart. It's dead. It just falls apart. And that can happen anywhere. But in a red blood cell, that means the cell membrane falls apart. The contents spill out. That gives you... And now you've destroyed your red blood cells. So you have anemia because anemia doesn't mean iron deficiency. It means... A, absence of emia, blood, uh, em, blood, ea, condition of, condition of an absence of, of blood, right? And so hemolytic anemia is a subvariant of anemia that has nothing to do with iron deficiency and has to do with peroxidation of the cell membrane. Now, vitamin E is known as a chain-breaking antioxidant contrary to the assertions of Fleetwood Mac, you can break the chain reaction with vitamin E. However, vitamin E does not break the initiation part. It breaks the propagation step. And the reason is that vitamin E is 1,000 times more reactive towards uh, lipid peroxyl radicals than other PUFAs are. And so if you have enough vitamin E in the cell membrane, you will break the chain and you will stop the propagation step. But you can't do anything to stop the initiation reaction 
because vitamin E is situated in the membrane. Uh, both its it, both its position in the membrane and its reactivity prevent it from stopping a water soluble oxidant from reaching the edge of the membrane and oxidizing a new PUFA. It only is good at stopping lipid peroxyl radicals from oxidizing other PUFAs in the cell membrane. So what that means is that your production of oxidants, your water soluble antioxidant protection. And having the right amount of PUFA in the cell membrane cannot be replaced by having vitamin E. And what that means is that you do need more vitamin E when you have more PUFA, but vitamin E can never, ever, 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 ever protect you against consuming too much PUFA. And so you want the right amount of PUFA, but you don't want any more than that in your cell membranes because if it is increasing in the cell membrane in response to diet, Beyond its utility, all it's doing is providing an oxidative liability. Now, that PUFAs don't cause oxidative stress. They are vulnerable to oxidative stress. And one of the problems in looking at the research is that you could do a short-term study that shows benefits of PUFA and no harms by providing the PUFAs in a context that does not have any serious oxidative stress. The problem is that as you age, you develop more and more oxidative stress and have more and more demands on your antioxidant protection. And circumstantially, you will come into conditions of elevated oxidative stress. Some of those might be semi-permanent. For example, you became mercury toxic. Others may be very transient. For example, you got sick, but you will come into contact with oxidative stress as a guarantee over the course of your life. And so it does not make sense to excessively build up oxidative liabilities in your body just because someone did a two-week study showing that you can reduce liver fat by eating sunflower oil, all right? So that's the context, and that context is very important for understanding the limitations of the studies, which is part of why there's so much controversy on it because there is a lot of conflicting evidence about the clinical impact of eating vegetable oils and I've analyzed them elsewhere. I'll link in the description. So I'm not going to link to my analysis. I'm not going to redo my analysis of that issue here. But I am going to say that you cannot under properly understand the research if you don't understand the fact that having an oxidative liability is different from having an acute cause of oxidative stress. PUFAs are an oxidative liability. They are not the acute cause of oxidative stress. And if you want to know what happens when you have conditional liabilities in excess on your balance sheet, look at all the bank failures that have taken place this year. Why did they happen? Well, because someone did a study of stress testing banks uh, years ago that showed that you can raise interest rates from this to this, and that's not going to cause banks to fail. And so some banks said, well, we can just be concerned about our short-term profit because these don't cause us harm to buy all these interest rate risk assets because it doesn't cause harm until it does. But then, you know, when this particular stress is placed on the system, the bank implodes, right? So this is not different from that. You have to consider that this is an PUFAs from seed oils are an oxidative liability under conditions 
of oxidative stress, they may not cause you harm right now, but you can spend years increasing the sat- the saturation of your tissues with PUFAs by eating a high PUFA diet. And the chickens may come home to roost at the end of the day. But the, 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 the difference with the bank analogy is that we very much know the exact types of stress that cause that make PUFAs an oxidative liability. And do we know that they will happen, right? Getting sick, getting nutrient deficiencies, getting heavy metal toxicity, and the cumulative stress of aging, right? Like, so your oxidative stress will increase uh, in the future. I'm not saying that you can't decrease it now by eating better, by living better, etc. It's just as a function of age, you will eventually accumulate enough stress in your system that your level of oxidative stress increases. And at some point, you go beyond the threshold where the accumulation of PUFAs as a liability manifests. Now, that was all from lesson two. Lesson four is the other relevant lesson. And what I would add here... Oh, this is a useful point. So the way that vitamin E prevents a lipid peroxidation chain reaction is to turn an oxidized PUFA into a lipid peroxide. Okay, so vitamin E creates one lipid peroxide to avoid the lipid peroxyl peroxidation chain reaction from causing many lipid peroxides. So this just goes back to the point that you cannot fully protect against excess PUFA with vitamin E because vitamin E, it in a best case scenario, makes each one oxidant generate one lipid peroxide instead of many. Which means that if you have more oxidants or you have more PUFAs, you get more lipid peroxides and vitamin E makes that happen in order to avert a worse scenario of many lipid peroxides in a chain reaction. Okay, so get it out of your head that vitamin E protects you from PUFA. Vitamin E protects you from the worst case scenario of PUFA. Now, interestingly, in the DRI for vitamin E, the dietary reference intakes, They said the following, vitamin E requirements have been reported to increase when intakes of polyunsaturated fatty acids are increased. Based on these data, it was suggested that a ratio of at least 0.4 milligrams of alpha tocopherol per gram of PUFA should be consumed. However, the method of determining the vitamin E requirement generated by PUFA intakes is not universally accepted because the amount of vitamin E required to stabilize PUFAs in tissues is influenced to a greater extent by their degree of unsaturation than by their mass. What that means is that uh, highly unsaturated fatty acids that are, that are, for example, arachidonic acid, DHA, and EPA are more vulnerable to ac- oxidation than the ALA or in flax oil or the linoleic acid in corn oil. All that means is that, is that the degree to which you need vitamin E to stabilize PUFA is greater than what those studies suggested because those studies were based on on alpha tocopherol to protect you against linoleic acid right so this this does not mitigate the point it exacerbates the point 
And and notice they say it's not universally agreed on. Not that not the principle. They don't say the principle is not universally agreed on. They say that the method of determining the amount of vitamin E you need per gram of PUFA is not universally accepted. I mean, nothing's universally accepted in, in science. So that's not very interesting. But notice that what they're saying is not universally accepted. It's not the principle that you need more vitamin E when you get more PUFA. It is, it is the method of determining the amount you need. Okay. Moreover, PUFAs are not deposited in the tissues in the same proportions that they occur in the diet. Um, right. So you you would have to have some adjustment factor for. It's not really per dietary amount. It's per amount in your tissues. But that that point actually is not that powerful. It's actually kind of a weak point because the turnover of PUFA is a lot higher than the turnover. Excuse me. The turnover of vitamin E is a lot higher than the turnover of PUFA. So, so actually, um, it's not even the amount deposited in the tissues that you want to know. It's really, it's really the turnover rate of the vitamin E because of the tissue saturation that was induced by the diet. Um. So really what you want is dietary studies that are long-term and really the long-term stuff is like largely uh, in terms of lifelong, it's, you know, you're only going to find that in animals and the, the uh, long-term dietary studies in humans really limited to the LA Veterans Administration Hospital study. Okay. So they go on to say, finally, dietary PUFAs are modified by elongation and desaturation and are catabolized to various degrees depending on energy status. And then the final point is, although, and I'm quoting, although it is clear that the relationship between dietary PUFA and vitamin E needs is not simple, high PUFA intakes should certainly be accompanied by increased vitamin E intakes. Now, the end result of this was they didn't factor this into the DRI at all because they couldn't agree on the quantitative, the quantitative determination of the requirement per gram of PUFA, right? So if you don't read the DRI report, what you don't find is that certainly, how often do you see scientists say this? Totally unhedged, certainly you have more PUFA, you need more vitamin E. This manifests nowhere in the numbers and tables that are used to calculate the daily values that the registered dietitians are used to look at people's intake. It factors nowhere. You have to read the report to see this. Okay. Now, when you look at different oils, what you find is that seed oils, such as corn oil, are not terrible as a source of vitamin E, even normalized to milligrams uh, vitamin E per gram PUFA, right? Like corn oil still outshines regular commercial butter as a source of vitamin E. Red palm oil you know, where, where you really see this shine is that wheat germ oil looks really good when you don't take into account its PUFA on the left. But when you do, all of a sudden, it's massively outshined by red palm oil. And it, you know, it doesn't even look that much better than the other fats. Like olive oil looks way behind wheat germ oil when you don't adjust for PUFA. But actually, olive oil looks fairly competitive 
with wheat germ oil, and it's even better than corn oil when you do take into account per gram PUFA. So the DRI tables don't don't point you in the direction of the graph on the right. But when you read the DRI report, it says certainly you want to look at the graph on the right instead of the graph on the left. And so the principle is true that something with more vitamin E per gram PUFA is what you want. That makes palm oil look excellent. And it you know really diminishes the importance of wheat germ oil. But it still doesn't look make corn oil look that bad. Now, when you look at um so one of the po- things that one of the points I make in this lesson is that plants need vitamin E to protect them against photosynthesis. And as a result, green leaves are extremely high in their vitamin E to PUFA ratio. And as a result, animals that eat green leaves have much better vitamin E to PUFA ratios than animals that eat uh corn or other grains. And if you look at grass-fed beef, it's generally 1.3 to 5.4 fold higher in vitamin E than grain-fed beef. Um, And if you put grass-fed butter in here, it's slightly better than olive oil. And it is, um, you know, not a lot better, but it is better than corn oil, right? So the reason that corn oil looks better than average butter is because it's average butter. If you if you have completely hay fed butter, it's really pathetic, right? So butter is very dependent on what the animal is eating, and when the animal is eating grass, um, it this looks better than corn oil. But the the what you have to go back to is the point that I made at the beginning, which is that vitamin E cannot protect you against all the harms of PUFA, and so because of that, that's why you don't want to eat corn oil now. There are secondary points such as seed oils have to be extracted using chemical solvents, and there's always traces of chemical solvents such as hexane left in the food, and these are toxic. You know, the toxicity is obviously low enough that no one is getting acute solvent toxicity from eating vegetable oil. You know, but you could say like, well, it's an added it's an added um, source of oxidative stress. In the grand scheme of things, how much does it play a role in the in the totality of oxidative stress? I don't know. Um, you know, there there's not good clinical demonstration of the harms of residual solvents in these oils. But like, why would you want to eat residual solvents in your oils, right? Um, and I I think the real big issue is that the stress that's caused, um. The stress that's caused, the stress that causes the PUFAs to eventually manifest as an oxidative liability is going to be partly made worse over time by the accumulation of chemical solvents. It's just that the real problem is the oxidative liability, right? Like when, so oxidative stress increases with aging. You know you will age, right? So, you're like, pretend that you had, um, you go back in a time machine and you were reading all the news about the bank failures that happened recently. And you can go back and you're, you're consulted on, you know, with interest rates of this and knowing, uh, what will happen in the future, like, 
should the balance sheet of this bank be the 70% uh, interest rate risk assets? What are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, no, I know the future. Um, so I'm not going to load up on things that are not going to harm me now, but are probably going to harm me later. I think you should take this very similar, you know, with the exception that we really know how human physiology works. Whereas these other things are, you know, economics is less a less um, hard science than nutrition, believe it or not, and certainly than biology. Um, you know, maybe a physicist is gonna is gonna slam their head uh, at me calling biology a hard science, but it's a hard enough science that we know some basic principles will be true about the course of physiological events as we age. And we know that PUFAs are an oxidative liability. I mean, that's the central reason why you want to moderate them from, you know, by not consuming a lot of seed oils. So that is my answer. Thank you very much, Dora, for that question. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a Masterpass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.